Hello, and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Matt Renner, the Executive Director of the World Business Academy, and I'm here with Ronaldo Brutico, the Academy's President and Founder. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit business think tank and action incubator dedicated to transforming the consciousness of business leaders, business students, and the public at large in order to inspire business to take responsibility for the whole of society. Ronaldo, we spoke in November about the major risks to the U.S. and international economy, and we introduced a new metric, which we're calling the economic doomsday clock, which, if it hits midnight, means we're headed into another major recession. The good news is you're feeling better than you were in November about the state of the U.S. and global economy. There are a lot of major threats out there, but the doomsday clock has ticked backwards. Can you give an overview of what you're seeing? Yeah, thanks, um, Matt, and thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Um, it's really interesting. that we, when, we, when we launched this service called the Doomsday Clock, the purpose was to start tracking those events which could trigger a recession as big or bigger than the magnitude of recession we experienced in 2008. So we're, we're looking at the things that, that can help avoid that recession. We're looking at the things that uh, would likely bring it on. And uh, we're going to continue reporting on this, uh, particularly through March, April of next year, where we're in the period of greatest risk. Um, let's just talk about some things that caused the clock to tick back a minute or two. Well, the threat of impeachment over the president's signing of the immigration rules, which is going to change probably the lives of 5 million Americans, bring them out of the shadows, is going to have a very profoundly positive economic effect in 2015. And more importantly, because the pre there wasn't a strong enough majority in the Republican House at this point for impeachment, the threat of impeachment, which would have been a conceivably triggering event, and I'm going to talk about why that's a triggering event in a moment, when it's what if any of these triggering events occurs, what is it that I expect to see the dominoes to fall? But I also want to go one other step. I'm very pleased that there's a $1.1 trillion spending bill pending in Congress today, 1,600 pages long, which means that no congressman or senator has read it. And there's all kinds of pork stuffed in there, and there's going to be all kinds of special interest stuff, which we'll talk about in a second. But that the fact that there's a 1,600-page bill that will prevent a government shutdown at the close of business today, it's 5 p.m. in Washington, is a very positive sign. As you know, we, uh, we identified this, this looming cutoff date in December in last month's show and said if, if they don't fund the government to go forward, that would be a triggering event. Well, it strikes me that what's probably going to happen, and there's a, there's a big fight going on right now, which I think is appropriate, by the way. The Democrats uh, caught on to a provision that somebody slid in in the dead of night on behalf of the banking industry which was going to severely gut some of the Dodd-Frank provisions and allow the banks to begin, resume, gambling with government-insured money in the form of derivatives. Now, the derivatives market has been shrinking uh, since the passage of Dodd-Frank, which is a healthy thing, and should get back down to a more normal state if Europe and the U.S. Have their, um, uh, are allowed to keep their regulations intact. I'm not worried about Europe. So Europe will continue to regulate banks. Europe will continue to put pressure, downward pressure on the unrestricted use of derivatives as gambling instruments. And I think Europe will be smart enough to keep banks from using insured government and taxpayer capital to do that gambling. The U.S. has this provision in the $1.1 trillion spending bill that got snuck in, and the Democrats are saying they don't want that to happen, and they're going to stop that bill from passing. Uh, the report out of Washington is that there are, is not enough Republican votes to pass the bill without some Democrats, probably 30 to 40 Democrats which means someone's going to make a deal. What excites me is that a deal will get made. 
the government will likely be funded. Now, there may be a temporary funding gap bill uh, to keep it going for the next 30 days while they, they, they iron out the kinks, but it's very, very encouraging. And kudos to Senator Elizabeth Warren for identifying that and going on the airwaves to uh, admonish her Democratic House colleagues to not fall for this trap. Uh, I just want to take and add one other word. Why it is so important, as you recall, derivatives were the central thing that brought on the Great Recession last time. Uh, you know, just a burst in the derivative market, which at that point was uh, buoyed by bad housing loans. Uh, today, the derivative market uh, still has a lot of stuff in it that doesn't make economic sense. Now, there are some things that do make economic sense for derivatives. For example, um, hedging the price of oil or gas for an airline, um, uh, hedging the price of textiles for a clothing company. Th- those are all kinds of contracts that, 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 that you can do with derivatives that make economic sense because there's an underlying economic purpose. But when we were up at $650, $700 trillion of derivatives, in a global economy that's only $64 trillion in total size, so 10 times more derivatives floating around, and no way to know whether the derivatives were good or bad, and no way to know whether the counterparty guarantees were good. AIG itself failed over them. Well, it, it's a huge thing. You, it's a door you don't want to reopen. You just don't want the banks to go back there and gamble with the public's money. If they did gamble with the public's money, we'd probably be forced to bail them out again, which I think is a terrible mistake. And many, many people, we're going to hear, we're going to talk about one of our listeners, Karen, in Washington, um, you know, still have not fully recovered from the 2008 um, uh, crisis. And I sure don't want our listeners to have another crisis on top of that. So we're going to be monitoring that spending bill. I'm, um, I'm, I'm also looking at um, the fact that the European Union and the Bank of England are continuing, and particularly the International Monetary Fund with Christian Lagarde, are continuing to monitor too big to fail, are continuing to push for banking reform, even as the Fed uh, is losing its enthusiasm for it. All of those things are positive signs to help prevent uh, the doomsday clock from ticking forward. Next, and of course, most important, we're getting a tremendous bump from the oil and gas prices dropping. Um, we, you remember, uh, we predicted that one. Uh, do you remember that show? Yeah, it was in March when we told listeners to be very careful with any oil and gas investments. Just for moral reasons, we've said that it's a bad idea to own them. But now in March, we said that economically speaking, they were very, very precarious and probably headed down steeply. No, in fact, we said going sideways or down for sure. And we issued a call to sell all your oil stocks. And I'm pleased to report if you took our advice and sold oil stocks, you would have made 35% because that's roughly how much on average the oil stocks have fallen since we gave that warning to sell oil stocks. And by the way, even if you don't believe you shouldn't own oil stocks for moral reasons, it's not a good time to buy yet. I'm not sure we've hit the bottom of the oil market. Uh, It's already around $60 a barrel, and there are some experts who think it could go as low as 50. And I think there's a very interesting conversation we ought to have, Matt, in a future show about why every time... The Saudis, and are we going to talk about the Saudi Arabian and why they're pumping more oil now? Yeah, that's the next question. Okay. Uh, let, me, let me just focus for one second on why oil and gas prices dropping is good for the economy. Yeah, because every dollar you don't put into your gas tank, which goes to the share owners and, and actually the senior executives because the perks in the oil industry are over the top. Every dollar you don't put in your gas tank is a dollar that can go to the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker. My, rec- my, my, my back of the envelope calculation at this point is that we have already 
because of the drop we've already incurred getting it to $60 a barrel, we're probably going to see $600 billion of fresh spending by consumers in non-oil-related ways in 2015. $600 billion is a lot of stimulus. If you think about it, it's enormous. So that stimulus going into the pockets, and, and the one thing about the oil prices dropping that I really like is we have this terrible problem in, in our consumer-driven economy. So two-thirds and more of our economy is consumer-driven. We've hollowed out the middle class. We've depressed the lower class. So all the benefits, basically, since before 2008, and 90% of the benefits are more since 2008, have gone to the richest 2% of our population. When you drop the price of gas, it's the first benefit that the average low-income person feels disproportionately more than the rich people. So if you're a billionaire, whether gas is $2.90 a barrel a gallon or whether it's $5.90 a gallon, doesn't affect you. And frankly, it doesn't change how many gallons you're going to buy. But if you are getting by on a minimum wage, uh, the price drop from $4 and something here, $4.5, almost 5 at one point, but $4.5 in California down to uh, $2.93 today, that drop is putting scarce money back into people's pockets and I predict will cause better spending in December than we saw last November. In fact, we, if we get a chance, we should talk later about why retail sales were weaker this year than they were. Retail sales were weaker in November for the uh, Black Friday and Cyber, uh, Cyber Monday, and we ought to come back and look at, at that. Uh, one quick note on that, Ronaldo. So the other, the other thing we're seeing that's a, a benefit to the what we're calling the poor people in the country and, and could be a good indicator for economic progress is the first uptick in real wages that we've seen in a long, long time. That just happened with the great jobs report that we got out uh, this month. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the jobs report, which showed that we we another like 57 consecutive months of, of private sector job growth and 321,000 jobs is phenomenal. Unfortunately, those jobs that we've created have not been high paying for the most part. They've been hamburger flipping and 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 service sector jobs, which have not been extremely high paying, and and not fully made up for the manufacturing sector. Although manufacturing is now coming back stronger, led by the automobile industry and a couple other industries. My, um, my, and we'll talk later in the show, I think, about the U.S. dollar and how its overvaluation is starting to affect manufacturing. But I, I want to just touch on real quickly that the way forward for the small person in this economy is to have more disposable income. That jobs report, for the first time, not only showed the growth, 321,000 jobs, but showed a tiny uptick in disposable income. Now, that should continue if the economy continues to grow at its current pace because we're now down at a 5.6% unemployment. It's not going to drop much lower than that. It conceivably, we'll get to 5.4, 5.5, but you're, you're bumping now up against what's called structural unemployment. So what's going to happen is the labor market tightens. It's going to give people more flexibility in moving to a higher paying job and so that bidding for labor will start. And when it starts, average wages will go up. One other factor that should never be forgotten, Affordable Care Act or so-called Obamacare has been extraordinarily successful. And what it's doing is not only lowering the cost of medical care in several ways we can talk about if the audience is interested, but it's also providing um, employment mobility. In other words, we're no, people are no longer tied to stay with their existing employer because they can now take their health insurance program with them. Right. It, up until Obamacare, you couldn't do that. So labor mobility and la lack of labor mobility is always a depressant on wages. 
With labor mobility, because affordable health care now, you can take it wherever you go, labor mobility is increasing at precisely the time that the labor market's starting to tighten, and therefore I'm predicting in the month ahead and in the months, in the first quarter particularly, I think you could see additional real wage gains. In fact, I'm expecting, and you're going to see a pretty good retail economy unless one or more of these doomsday clock issues hit. Yes, I was going to say, you, you sound pretty optimistic, and that's a big tick back from the, the last month's show. What are some of the outlying factors that could uh, go make us move towards midnight on a doomsday clock? Yeah, well, I mean, by the way, I'm not any more optimistic or less than I was a month ago. I think all the same concerns I have are there. I said then, and I will repeat, the U.S. economy was set to grow by at least 2.5%, could get as high as 3-plus percent in 2015. Uh, all the ducks were lined up in the right rows. The concern I had was that the Republicans would use their majority in the House and the Senate to not just engage in um, bad policy, like sticking in this portion on the let the banks gamble with our money clause, but that they would actually have enough um, um, lack of wisdom, for lack of a better word, to either impeach the president or to not put a funding bill together by December to not adequately fund the highway trust bill in March and to not raise the debt ceiling when it comes up again in March, April. And we'll know when we get closer when the debt ceiling will have to be raised, March, April, May. Um, the government just got some great news uh, just yesterday or day before. Uh, they auctioned off scarce spectrum, meaning uh, places in the radio f- frequencies for more cellular phones they were not expecting the windfall they got. They ended up getting $37, $38 billion for the spectrum. They were expecting a fraction of that. Seven of that billion, $7 billion of that will go to spectrum enhancement. The other $30 billion is going to go straight to the U.S. Treasury to reduce debt. So that then pushes out further in time when the debt ceiling has to be uh, uh, right. renewed. But it will be renewed. And at some point, that Republican majority in both houses could become so difficult and come to loggerheads with the president that we would see events triggered that would cause a tremendous uh, reversal. And and we have, I mentioned last month, and I'll repeat it this month, at that time, the U.S. dollar, I said, was overvalued, perhaps by as much as 20% relative to other currencies. And since that show a month ago, it's gone up some more. Mm -hmm. Now, some of those currencies, like the ruble, which has had worst decline probably since the fall of Russia, um, Soviet Union. Uh, the ruble has declined 40% uh, this year, and I see no recovery coming. Well, that's because of some very silly things that we'll talk about later that Putin's been doing. But the decline of the, uh, the euro against the dollar, the decline of the pound against the dollar, the decline of, of the Australian dollar, the decline of the Canadian dollar, all of these things are not based upon fundamentals in their respective economies. What it's based upon is the fear that if Europe continues to go sideways or down, if Japan continues to go down, which I think is almost a certainty, then uh, the yen is weaker and the place you want to put your money is in the U.S. dollar because there is strength and growth. That particular flight to safety, as it's called, and flight to higher uh, to, 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 to lower yields but higher uh, liquidity, that flight to the dollar poses a great risk to the global economy if we have a triggering event. Um, I started to say, and I just want to finish this thought, and then we'll go into, uh, into Russia a little bit more. You'd asked, you know, why, this, why the Saudis doing this? 
why are the Saudis, and I mentioned that they telegraphed in the last show, that they were telegraphing to the OPEC meeting that they were not going to stop the fall of the price of oil. And it was around 70 at that point. Now it's down to 60. Why are they doing this? And I mentioned several things. I mentioned that they, it's a great way to get even with Iran because it punishes Iran. It's a great way to get even with um, Russia, and it, it pr- reduces Russia's powers as a non-OPEC country. And it gives more control of the international community over what Russia is trying to do. But the, but the big factors that the Saudis, I think, concluded, and we touched on this briefly last time, but I want to go into a little more detail. The Saudis are hoping they will so, make it so uneconomic to do the Canadian tar sands that the, the tar sands oil won't come on the market, further adding to the glut. They also want to hurt uh, independent uh, shale and oil gas extraction in the United States, which has taken them by surprise. And they know if the price drops low enough, it will cripple the further uh, exploration. And shale wells tend to pay off with their oil or gas relatively quickly. So they don't, they don't play out over decades. They play out over years. So if, if, if the Saudis, and I'm pretty sure this is what they're attempting to do, are trying to make it uneconomic to frack and uneconomic to do tar sands distillation, which I'm in favor of both of those. Um, Their theory is that 2015 will be a bad year for them, which is great because it'll hurt Russia and Iran from their point of view. But it will will slow down this production. So they're expecting in 2016, by mid-year, that the slowed production in the U.S. will give them control again over global oil markets. And at that point, they'll ratchet the price back up as they've always done. I think this time they're miscalculating for the first time in my adult life. Because I think that the global movement towards renewable energy, candidly towards electric vehicles, the BMI electric vehicle just hit, it's on the streets now in California. I'm sure it's around the streets in other parts of the world. Um, Tesla has revolutionized the car industry in terms of the idea of electric cars. Uh, the first um, Hondas have hit the streets as hydrogen fuel vehicles in California, and Toyota made a major statement very recently that it's staking its future on hydrogen as a, as a propulsion system. So with all of those things happening, I believe that the Saudis are miscalculating and that when they go to try and seize control of the oil markets again in 2016 or so, halfway through it, it, it won't work. Now, if there's a major recession between now and then, it even makes the strategy less likely to work. So, again, we'll be looking at these things. In the meantime, they're putting a lot of money in consumer pockets. So I want to just clarify. That, that was a lot of information, although I, I want to talk specifics here. One thing is we need to clarify for our listeners. We're not saying we're out of the woods in terms of the possibility of the, of the American government sabotaging this recovery, right? One of the things to watch is the relationship between the House Democrats and the House Republicans the House Republicans will probably need Democratic support to get anything through because some of their more strident members will be pushing for really aggressive policies. So that relationship and the ability of the House Democrats to stay strong in the face of uh, poison pills or let the president do the negotiating um, is going to be a determining factor. I also see the inside politics of the Republican Party coming into play here because as soon as you know, maybe the second, third quarter next year, they're going to be in full presidential campaign mode for 2016. Um, so the internal politics of the Republicans is go- are going to determine a lot of what they actually end up doing and if they're going to play brinksmanship with the debt ceiling and the like. Yeah, actually, just on that thought, um, you know, this last week was a great article in the New York Times about the fact that the heavy donors in the traditional Republican Party 
have been meeting trying to agree on a candidate in order to avoid a costly and potentially politically damaging um, primary fight and in order to, to, to regain control of the party from the, the Tea Party wing of the party. Uh, what I said last month, and you touched on it a moment ago, I wanted to reiterate. To me, it is interesting to see what the Democrats and the Republicans will do in Washington, but it's far more interesting, I said then, to see what the Republicans will do within their own ranks. And this, the passage of this bill, this $1.1 trillion bill, when it occurs, is an indication that the Republicans, what I would call the mature adult normal Republicans, are able to push their agenda. They're going to lose 30 or 40 right-wing Tea Partiers, but they will pick up that many votes from the Democrats with a budget that makes sense. So it's interesting that Boehner, in order to become effective, and the same with McConnell, will be pulling Democratic votes periodically because of the fight within their own party. I don't think, and what triggered the fight this time, by the way, is that at least 30 or 40 Republican Congress people, Tea Partiers, uh, are incensed that this that they haven't impeached Obama. So I think it's really positive from the doomsday clock point of view that 30 or 40 really right-wing Republicans couldn't cause a impeachment vote because there's that many more Republicans that are realizing it's not a good idea. And there's clearly a vast majority of Republicans that now realize that a shutdown of the government didn't work last time and won't work this time. So those are very positive indications for the de- for the for the doomsday clock. Uh, can, I, can I just finish up on the Russian thing? Yeah, go ahead. I just want to. I want to. One of the things that we like to do in the show is we like to point things out to be watching. And by the way, if any of you are interested in in in, in, in any particular piece of this, please call us and, and send us a note, and we'll we'll focus on it. But keep your eye on the Russian sanctions. They expire in March 2015, the EU sanctions particularly. The Americans are not, are not going to change position. The EU is going to see if it can hold its, um, its, itself together in the face of what's been a very tough year for the EU. Um, I, I really do not agree with Angela Merkel's policy of austerity. I think it's the exact wrong thing to do. I think that uh, it's tragic that she continues to subject all of Europe to a misguided policy, which clearly doesn't work. I was very pleased to see an excellent column to this effect by Krugman recently, basically pointing out the same thing I'm saying now. But I, I, I want to just focus people on what Putin doesn't understand. And I saw uh, a portion of the speech he gave, uh, his kind of State of Russia speech. It is clear to me that this man is practically delusional. Now, I know he wants to be a modern-day czar. You don't have 16 palaces unless you want to be a modern-day czar. But um, he's, he's so badly isolated himself from any rational economic theorists or econ- economists, he does not, I don't think, understand what he has done. And he doesn't understand what a 40% drop in the ruble does. I don't think he understands what the capital flight from Russia this last five, six months has been about. He, do- he doesn't understand that. He doesn't understand he's got 700 billion dollars of debt he's got to refinance certainly in the next six months and I'm not sure where that's going to come from unless it comes from his sovereign wealth fund okay and, and he's and he's badly hemorrhaging negative cash flow now and he doesn't seem to have gotten the message so what he did in his speech unfortunately as um, oligarchs do and, and as, as dictators do he focused on the enemy without oh the US and the West is doing this to us so because you know, but we're reassembling Mother Russia and we're going to, we got Crimea and we're going to continue to get the rest of Russia back kind of thing. That focusing on the enemy without usually works in Russia and in fact his popularity has gone up. It doesn't work, however, when people feel the impact 
of these sanctions more, when they feel the impact of this economy, when, you know, when, when they're not able to get their bread and vodka. So I'm, I'm really concerned about Putin. I'm concerned about what happens about these sanctions. I'm concerned about uh, Russia as a giant unknown geopolitically. And uh, I'm concerned that he may seek additional military confrontations in the Ukraine or elsewhere. And you need to be watching that as well as what the EU does with the sanctions renewal required by March of 2015. Yeah, and Ronaldo, you touched on a, a way for our listeners to get in touch with us. If you have questions or comments, please do send them to info, I-N-F-O, at worldbusiness.org, and we'll definitely read them um, and potentially respond on the air if there's a few of the same questions. Uh, so a quick note for our listeners, the World Business Academy is a 501c3 nonprofit organization our work relies on people like the listeners of the show to join and help support it. We have a $25 a month associate member level that I'd like to encourage anyone listening to sign up for. And if you go to our website, which is worldbusiness.org, and click on Become a Member on the right side of the page, you can easily sign up for that support level. Um, it's huge and really important to the continuation of the show that we get some people or more people supporting it. We've had a number of signups, I'd say about 10 but we'd like to get that number up to more proportionate to how many people are listening. So, Which is in the thousands, many it, thousands. It, yeah, it's, I mean, we have a thousand listeners easily and, and sometimes spikes up way higher than that. So I want to I move now, Ronaldo, to our interview with Mark Mori. He's a, the leader for the Institute of Natural Learning, and he dedicates his time to helping business leaders achieve healthy, functioning, and self-sustaining organizational cultures by harnessing the authentic and powerful principles of nature. Mark has over 25 years experience in this work and designs groups, events, and initiation experiences to create personal and organizational change and to create connected leadership and regenerative culture models. And he'll be explaining more of what all that means in our view with, interview with him. Mark, are you there? Hey, Mark. Hey, Mark. How are you? And um, I want to welcome you because you uh, you come to the show by way of our dear friend and a fellow for many, many years of the World Business Academy, Terry Molnar, who's been a student of the Mondragon cooperatives and other indigenously uh, other indigenous forms of economic uh, organization. And he recommended your work to us. So we're happy to have heard about your nature-connected leadership. Could you tell us just a few minutes about the essence of what you're doing, Mark, and why people would care?
So it's an out-of-the-box returning of the old and revamping it for the new. And um, there's a lot of evidence that the indigenous systems are hardy and long-lasting despite many, many difficulties and traumas they've experienced uh, over time. So that's, that's it in a nutshell. You know, my two offerings really that I think are high leverage for the world today, you know, and specifically for the business world is um, regenerative practices for leadership, including uh, the old practice of leadership initiation. And the, the original cultural context that I've intimately been a part of is in the early social designs when youth were heading into adulthood, they wanted to make sure the elders want to make sure that those future leaders are going to have the whole in mind. And I see right on the top of your website, you know, taking responsibility for the whole. Well, that is an ancient cultural practice, right of passage, initiation, into taking responsibility. And so there's very specific constructs in those ceremonies that actually inform the, the individual about how they actually are all connected. And so they can't help but act in accordance with that because that becomes part of their value system. Well, Mark, you know, I'm just curious, in, in your work, that, that that implies that you use some sort of ritual as well as traditional speaking to your audience. That's right. So, you know, storytelling is, is one cultural method for um, sharing values, you know, hero stories about people who've made the journey come out the other side, and it's inspiring. Uh, you know, we could tell a story about Ray Anderson and his journey of becoming a connected leader and being aware of the natural world through the ecology of commerce that Paul Hawken wrote. It's a very powerful modern story. By the way, Ray, then, uh, Ray now deceased, of course, but was for many years until he died a member of the Academy uh, and came to several of our meetings for us to, to talk about his journey up what he used to call Mount yeah. Sustainability. Uh, and I think he's a uh, an incredible, he was an incredible uh, representative of what business could be in its best form. But he, he's a really great example for me because he also not just has a sense of himself, you know, like what have I done, but also of the natural world, which is one of the pieces that I think has kind of moved to the side. It's become extraneous. And, and we've seen in children today that it's actually costing them a lot. The less and less children are brought outside the um, less resilient they become. And they're actually the less smarter they become in school. And so they're actually not producing healthy, strong, vibrant young learners anymore because of the lack of nature connection and biting us. Anyhow, so returning to nature, the context is, in nature is the context of initiation. And uh, you can consider it an off-site retreat. And uh, so, so but you uh, know, just to... Necessarily just, just, to, just to go into your, your formula, I believe what you do sure. is you, you do like a, kind of an introductory thing for people that's fairly inexpensive where they can experience a beginning like view of your work, right? You do like an afternoon or something. And then if people exactly. like that experience, then they sign up for what, a two or three day program? Exactly. Yeah. And aren't you based exactly. in the UK? Um, I'm actually based in Vermont, but I do work in Europe and California. I'll be in California in January. Okay. I mean, I'm doing a tour about this. Yeah, and will you be all over the state, or have you just going to one part of it? Uh, I'm going to start in Santa Barbara for one of those intro talks, and then go up to St. Louis Obispo for a whole evening, and then San Francisco for a talk up there at one of the impact hubs. Oh, great. I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll definitely want to say hi when you come through. And um, 
if people want to be, line up for those talks, if they want to go to the introductory one particularly, just get a flavor for this, um, give your website where they can go to let you know they're interested. Would you, Mark? Absolutely. Uh, the website is aconnectedleader.com. Yeah. And, and the reason I thought you were based in, in, in Europe is um, many, many years ago, I got connected with Schumacher College, and I saw that on your website. Yeah. Yes. Uh, great I respect for it. I invited to go there. You know, they like, they like bringing on thought leaders to experiment with their edge work. And I said, all right, well, here's what I want to do. I want to take deep indigenous principles and transfer them into a modern uh, business leadership setting. And they said, great, let's do it. Great. Well, that's and a great a phenomenal. It's, it's a great outfit. Sorry? It's a great outfit, Schumacher. Yeah, yeah. It was a great context for learning, and people came from all over the world. They had such an international audience. And, um, you know, there's the, the participants were still doing some follow up calls, um, and the work they're doing in their workplace and in their communities is phenomenal. Um, so I really know this works. There's a woman who is an indigenous woman from New Guinea who ended up marrying. Uh, Scotsman and, and became part of the British government and, and is consulting on climate change in Indonesia. And her mission is to stop deforestation of virgin forests down there. And she's working with the native people from the original villages that she's from. But she's been lost because she doesn't know how to make a difference in the system because she said every member from the indigenous people through the levels of government are all enslaved by the process. And so after the course, she said, this is, this is what's been missing for me. These indigenous mentoring technologies that you're offering me are going to speak directly to the people there and empower leadership at every level and not wait for the upper levels to pass policy. She's ignited and inspired, and she's got a path. So we're going to be working on the front lines of that work through um, the actual systems that originally inspired these teachings in the first place. So it's amazing to get that back. And, Mark, this Mark, this is Matt. When we spoke ahead of time, uh, a, a few times actually, you know, you gave me an example of one such uh, technique that's used essentially as a peace building technique uh, ahead of any kind of deep conversation interactions between tribes. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it how it um, interacts with the possible uh, or the the sea level business culture and how we can build those types of ceremonies into our interactions? Absolutely. Um, uh, so I, there's, a, there's several models that I've been working with over the years, and one of them is a map of cultural elements that are common in a lot of indigenous societies around the world, and these are elements that promote connection and relationship. And any time there's connection and relationship processes in place, you have a more resilient group, community, team, um, because you have a diversity of, of resources and networks going on. So it's opposite of the silo or the guild effect. So these practices are cultural in that they're somewhat invisible, but they establish bonds around values and, um, and people. So one of these is called a greeting custom, and um, examples of greeting customs happen at the edges and the beginnings of things. So um, one example is between territories, if somebody was was entering into a village, there'd be a pause there and two people would go through an extensive process of several hours of, of sharing story with each other and listening to story and finding out who they are through their experiences before they would even cross further into the village where their women were and the more sensitive aspects of their culture. That threshold can definitely be transferred to 
environments where we don't go straight to the transaction, but we stop and meet the person. Who are you? What are you bringing? What do you value? And here's who I am. So that practice is longstanding. And another version of that comes from uh, the Haudenosaunee, which is the Iroquois people of the Northeast. They've had a thousand-year history of democracy um, before even the United States government, which is where Ben Franklin um, learned you know, the earlier design of the American Constitution and informed Thomas Jefferson around that. So the Haudenosaunee have very powerful peacemaking practices and strong governance systems. And what, one of their rules of thumb is before any agreements get made and any um, policies are going to be decided, they have this ritual called the words before all else. And it's a long word, and that's what it translates to, the words before all else. And it's a practice of gratitude, hmm. of giving thanks for all the things that they are dependent on and interdependent with. with. And if they didn't have those, they might die. So this is like the clean water, right? The soil, the air we breathe, all the animals and plants that sustain us. And in that consciousness, they're doing that on a totally interwoven basis with the governance systems and policies that they're creating as um, a confederation. Well, I got to tell you, Mark, and, I'm really excited about learning I, more about this myself. Um, sorry, go ahead. Did I cut you off? That's okay. I was just say, how's that landing? Yeah. I mean, it sounds exactly like what the world needs in, in, in healing our relationships and making sure that we're uh, intentionally creating peaceful relationships and interactions. Um, I would really like to make sure that uh, our listeners know how to connect with you. Um, and I'm looking forward to coming in and hearing what you have to say more in person. This is all very exciting, and, and it's what the Academy has been about for 27 years. So I, the tools and the new approach uh, is something that I'm definitely looking forward to. And I just want to point out, um, I, I read up a little bit, Mark, and I, I, I want to just hit the four things that I saw that are really key elements of, of the work you do, which is teaching people how to unhook from the limiting self. And I think we all could use some work on that. Uh, reconnecting with the wholeness of nature, reforming a new coherent worldview and mission as opposed to the one we have, which is fractured. And integration application of transformation. You know, to me, word transformation, uh, I don't take lightly. I, I don't think it's something we just throw out as a, as a buzzword. I think transformation implies that we really are ready to be something different in order to do something different. And uh, I'm glad you were able to join us on our show. hope people you. go to your website. You want to give it one more time, Mark, and then we'll, we're going to have to move on. Yes, it's aconnectedleader.com. Aconnectedleader.com. Great. And I'll stick a link in the email so people can find you, Mark. Thanks for your time today. Thanks very much for having me. Great talking with you. All the work you do in the world. Appreciate it, Mark. All the best. Excellent. Okay. So Mark Morey, and um, he's coming here in January, right? Yeah, he'll be in Santa Barbara in January and in the Bay Area after that. And I'll uh, make sure and include a link for everyone who gets our email. And, and you know, we should talk to Dr. Brown and see that he, he makes sure our friends in San Luis Obispo know he's coming there, too. Absolutely. Because we got a lot of friends up there who work with us on our uh, Close Diablo Canyon campaign. Okay. And by the way, you know, we didn't celebrate yet in this call, Matt. Um, people who know the Academy know that we uh, turned down a $95 million um, refund from Southern California Edison in conjunction with the closing of the San Onofre nuclear power plant we fought on with our friends uh, friends of the earth and other other groups. And when we turned that down, we fought really hard. And, you know, I met privately with the, the senior most executives of Edison to explain line by line how our bill for them 
was 1.5 billion, not 95 million. And I'm pleased to report on November 20th, so after the last show, before this one, uh, the commission, Edison, and all the parties have now entered a final judgment of $1.4 billion being refunded to California ratepayers, up from $95 million when it was proposed to us. I'm really proud of the role we and all of our affiliates, uh, particularly Friends of the Earth and others, played in that conversation. And I'm delighted that the commission was willing to go at least that deep into it. Frankly, Edison came off better than they deserved in the particular case. I think it should have been higher. But I'm happy that we got what we got because it sends a signal that you can't just, and this is important for business generally, we're not going to allow business to take advantage of people and then when they get caught, not even hold them accountable as happened the last time we had that Wall Street collapse and one of the reasons why I don't want them gambling with our money in the future. Absolutely. Um, All right, Ronaldo, I want to do something now. We used to do something called the lightning round on the show. I'm changing it to the economic drill down where we're going to give uh, trends and specific information about what we see coming in the near term in, uh, in different asset classes, but also as the, in the economy as a whole. So we said in March, uh, we already talked about this, but that oil and gas prices are going to drop. Uh, the stocks were going to be much lower in value, and that happened. Um, I want to continue uh, looking at what we see coming down the future, but we also received a letter from a woman named Karen in Washington State who listens to the show. First of all, Karen, thank you for writing in. And her question was, what would you, what kind of words of wisdom would you share with her personal financial advisor? Yeah, and thanks again, Karen, for writing. It's very simple. And Karen and I had met, interestingly enough, at a conference over in Rome. And then she came back to, to an event we did in Santa Barbara, uh, where I did some speaking. Uh, the wisdom I would share with any financial advisor is this. If you think this is the time to go on automatic, you do not understand the situation. <laughs> um, you know, there's a joke. It's like, uh, blessed are they who stand calmly in the midst while other, everyone else is running around holding their head. They simply do not understand the situation. Uh, financial advisors have never been trained to look outside the box. And all the important stuff is outside the box. Financial advisors, and I'm not being critical because there are many that I like. As you know, I'm very, very fond of First Affirmative and what they do to help people stay in socially responsible investing circles and that sort of thing. But most financial advisors are taught to linearly, linearly, in a linear fashion, project from history on the assumption that that which has preceded is that which will follow. So an analogy I like to use, uh, Karen, is... If you're driving down the freeway at 100 miles an hour and the windshield of your car is blacked out, but you can see through your rearview mirror out through the glass in the back of your car so you can see where you've been, but you can't see where you're going, you can do just great, even at 100 miles an hour, if the road doesn't bend. First bend in the road, it's a terrible crash. At 100 miles an hour, a non-survivable crash for many people. So how do you avoid being in a crash scenario? The answer is you have to be willing to look out the front windshield too. And if all you do is look at data that's linearly projected, so I'm going in a straight line, I'm looking in my rearview mirror, the road is straight behind me, so I'm going to assume the road's going to be straight in front of me. That's a deadly scenario which will cause a wreck. What's, how do you translate into financial advice? You, you have to look outside the box at the kind of factors we try to drill into in this show. So when we say... It's, 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 it's crazy making to me, frankly, that Putin doesn't understand what he's doing, but he doesn't. 
So knowing he doesn't understand, I used the word delusional advisedly earlier, then it's really important that when you calibrate what's likely to happen on world markets, you know that factor has to be watched from a different perspective. It isn't business as usual. On this show a number of years ago, I, I said that people who invest in Russia are going to get clobbered because you can't invest in a totalitarian state that doesn't have good economics. And that's what's happened to people in Russia. I mean, BP being the best example, but it's every single business that's tried to make money in Russia, Western businesses, are getting just hammered. In fact, I, I think the only people making money in Russian businesses right now are Russians who are close to Putin, and they're making it based on government fiat. But all those government companies that he's now nationalized to support his, 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 his control of this country, of his country, are all critical um, drains on his ability to rehabilitate with the falling price of oil, which represents probably, used to represent, I'm going to say 65, 70% of his budget. So uh, certainly of his, of, his, of his export revenues. So here's where I come up, words of the wise to the financial industry. Look at things from a practical, fundamental point of view and always wonder if everybody on Wall Street seems to be going in the same direction. Typically, that's just before the cliff. So lemming-like behavior in Wall Street is absolutely endemic. And, and, and conventional wisdom is one of the worst ways to ever govern your financial affairs. So in a period of time of political instability in the West with an overvalued dollar by 20% and the beginnings of wage increases in the U.S., deflationary pressures that are enormous in Japan and continuing for now for more than 20 years, deflationary pressures in Europe. Um, when you look at all these factors and what's behind them, you a different picture emerges as to how to preserve capital and then how to prudently grow your capital. So at the academy, we always, and you know, we have an academy advised fund that's maintained at First Affirmative. Um, that, and excuse me, it's not a fund, it's a portfolio. Uh, what we try to do is focus first on capital preservation. How do I keep what I got? And then adjust our income goals modestly to not jeopardize our capital preservation goals. So a goal today, for example, uh, that I'd be happy with, am happy with, is 5 to 7% yield in a sound capital preservation program. Now, we have not yet recommended buying gold, although we've told people stand by, because if one of the triggering events happen and the doomsday clock starts ticking closer to midnight, then gold will, we think, begin to spike out of fear. We haven't yet bought massively into uh, Swiss francs, but we started because in the reallocation of global currencies, we see Swiss francs as the strongest um, possible correlative to the U.S. dollar's weakness. Um, so I could go on and on. I won't. Uh, the point I want to make for you is we do a, a special show where we launched. Um, it's for members of the Academy. And anybody who wants to, to, to participate can, uh, can do so also for a fee of $250 a month. And what that show is, is my private conversation five days after this show airs uh, with George Gay, the chairman of First Affirmative, where we talk about our macroeconomic point of view here in the academy, what we're looking at, what yardsticks we're using to measure things by. And George really pushes me and probes in a very astute way. George is the founding chairman of the oldest socially responsible investing financial network in the world, uh, First Affirmative. And he's a really articulate, thoughtful guy. Um, and he, he understands the Wall Street perspective. So he and his team 
push on me to further explain or to further illuminate those issues which I think are critical towards preserving capital and getting a reasonable rate of return. And then from those conversations, George and his team make their decisions on how to manage their folio. Uh, and we recommend to people, it's a, if you want safety, that's one where I put money and I'm, I'm assuming other people will too. But I wanted you to know that your financial advisor needs to be able to explain to you, and this is the last and final thing I'll say, if your financial advisor cannot explain to you in plain English, I mean really plain English, so you would understand as a layperson what that person is doing and why, and never uses the words, this is the trend line, or this is what we're expecting based on what happened in the last five years, or this is what's happened to the markets over the last 50 years. As long as your financial advisor doesn't use that and can explain in, in plain English what they want you to do with your money and why, I'm happy. It's when they start using jargon. It's when they start saying, well, we can predict the future because we know the past. That begins to be blinding. It's like plating that windshield black and the first curve in the road is going to get you. Thanks. Yeah, Ronaldo. So I'm interested in uh, some of your thoughts on the upside. So the investment opportunities you're seeing in growth industries. Um, and we didn't talk about it before. And if you want to fold in your analysis of climate change, I think that's probably prudent here. Yeah, well, actually, that's that's a those two dovetail because um, a friend of the academy, Jigger Shaw, wrote a book called Creating Climate Wealth, and what he's talking about is how to make money out of climate change because climate change is now accelerating, as everybody knows, and clearly past the tipping point. So, climate change is creating new industries and new entrepreneurs. So, for example, uh, no one made a living. 10, 12 years ago, installing photovoltaic cells on the roofs of houses in California, and now it's a giant multi-billion dollar industry as it's becoming globally. So um, what Jigger's saying is, in the book, Creating Climate Wealth, what there are ways to make money from a crisis, and that's probably the smart thing to do because if you can't stop the crisis and we're trying to stop it, at least learn how to see which industries are arising and which opportunities arise, and then apply that logic. That's, that's one way to do it. Can I, can I comment on that? Just to clarify, he's he's talking about ways to make money both mitigating uh, climate change and as part of the transition away from fossil fuels. So it's not just exploitation of the no, no. of the climate crisis. It's here's a way to make money while trying to fix some of the huge broken problems. Yeah, I mean, if people are crazy enough not to fix climate change, then you ought to be in the business of of, of supporting companies that will do better under the climate crisis that's now accelerating. I mean, here we are in California with a severe drought, the worst in the nation in the state's history. Um, we're going to get battered by a rainstorm today and tomorrow. It's already started. And that, that storm, if it dumps the worst that they're predicting, at most will affect a 2% increase in our reservoirs. Right. The drought's not over, right. but it's now punctuated by these short periods of deluge. Right. So uh, knowing that, you start thinking, okay, what are the what are the businesses of the future which will ride that wave of change rather than attempt to resist it? And, and not just ride it. My my point is that they're actually going to be helping to bend the curve away from uh, runaway climate change. That's his theory in that book. Is these are companies that you can make money with that will actually by investing in them will help to heal the planet. So it's a it's a yeah. it goes a step further than riding the wave. I think. And, and to connect with what we said earlier in the show, so that when I said I think the Saudis are miscalculating this time because of people like Jigger Shaw and us. I mean, what they're miscalculating is that it's the same old game. Once they knock down the price low enough that tar sands are no longer economic and fracking is no longer economic, they'll go back to business as usual. And the 
consumptive patterns of the global economy will continue to be um, gas and, and oil hogs once again. I don't think they're right because I think there's just too big a transition now occurring to uh, industries and companies that understand we have a fundamental change to make. And Jigger's right. If you want to help bend that curve, invest in renewable energy companies and renewable energy projects. So I'm very excited about that. I also want to touch on, like, for example, we, we, did, we talked last month and the month before, we talked about the idea of um, the, uh, the housing market in the U.S. and how household formations are lagging. Uh, and, and, you, and just this last week, I see the, F, um, the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are now saying they want to allow for 3% down mortgages instead of 20. Wow. Because they want to entice people, particularly first-time buyers, to come into the market. Because if there isn't a first-time buyer to buy the house, then that first-time buyer doesn't become a second-time buyer. doesn't migrate out. Well, I predicted last month, and I'm going to now reiterate it, I think we have got a very long-term trend I won't say it's irreversible, but for the next five or 10 years, we have a long-term trend where the pressure on um, the residential customer, the consumer of uh, private homes, is going to find themselves renting rather than owning. So we said several shows ago, if you want to get into the multi-unit dwelling investment market, investing in apartment buildings, that would make more sense to me than trying to build houses and flipping them and selling them. So I think that trend is, the data is all coming in now that that's going to continue happening. I want to do one other thing, though. And this ties to the comment that I mentioned about financial advisors. There was a poll the New York Times conducted in which 64% of the respondents said that they didn't believe the American dream was possible. That's part of home ownership buying. Okay, the American dream was, you know, every, you know, one, one, one uh, a nuclear family of four could own a little house with a picket fence, and that was the American dream, right? Uh, and that's gone forever, 64% of the people believe. They're right. It is gone. But in the same poll, it is strikingly crazy that the reason those respondents said that is because of overregulation that might interfere with economic growth, which means that the public has been dumbed down so bad they don't realize they've been sold a bill of goods by the Koch brothers and others, and they now believe what will keep them enslaved to a permanent downward spiral. So I just want to articulate your financial advisor, Karen, or anybody else listening to the show, if you think overregulation is what's causing the the decrease in spending power of the average American, you are 100% wrong. Don't drink that Kool-Aid. The truth is what's causing this terrible decrease is the split between the very, very wealthy so the top 2% who've achieved 95% of the benefits since 2008 and the rest, the other 98%. So that split is particularly critical to be watching because until that split gets healed, you won't be able to predict accurately what's likely to happen next. I'll give you an example. Minimum wage people will have, a, as I said earlier, a bigger benefit to their disposable income by the dramatic drop in the price of gasoline than will the wealthy. Well, that's one of the few things happening in society that's true about. So if you want to know whether the less well-off segments of society are going to spend more in December, January, February, March, short of a doomsday event, they are. And it's going to show up in places that cater to that type of purchasing. You're also going to see there was a slight uptick in restaurant uh, traffic this month. And, and, that's, and in the same month when McDonald's was down. 
And the reason is, if you were used to having to live on McDonald's, because that's all you could afford as a minimum wage worker, and now you got a few extra bucks in your pocket, now you can go to Applebee's. Okay? So you, you, you get more choices because a few extra dollars, you can up-level one notch on your food choices if you eat out. So I just want people to focus on these critical data points and please send in ones that you want to know about. I'm not a big fan of a, of a resuscitation of individual residential units yet. Um, don't see that in the offing, although it's getting better. Uh, I see more uh, multi-unit dwelling and I see continued um, growth of probably entrepreneurship-driven businesses uh, as we move forward, balance of this year out through next. So on that note, Ronaldo, uh, stepping back, is there anything else you want to add as a general note to our listeners before we end the show? Yeah, I think the last thing I would add is this. We live, you know, there's this old Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. <laughs> we live in one of the most interesting times I could imagine. Climate change has passed the tipping point, And what we have to do now is not only stop emitting CO2, which we didn't do today, or reduce it, which we didn't do today. We have to re literally reconstruct planet Earth. We have to undo the damage we did. There are ways to do that. And we need to be focusing all of our intelligence on that. We need to be focusing our intelligence on rebuilding the infrastructure in the United States, which is so badly dilapidated. Um, the roads in this country, the, the bridges in this country, the railroads particularly in this country, uh, every, every form of mass transit you can think of dramatically requires funding. That would be an investment in the future. I don't see those investments coming yet, although I'm beginning to see some positive trends at the state levels, which I'm very happy about. And, you know, you've got a state like California, which has gone through this massive turnaround because the people of the state passed two initiatives that the political figures didn't want. One was they passed a, a law that basically says we're going we're gonna to have the districts set by an impartial body rather than the Democratic or Republican Party, right. which has reduced gerrymandering dramatically, giving democracy a better chance. And number two, we passed a, a law that says that you only need a majority to pass a budget, simple majority. Well, those two together with the, some things that Jerry Brown as governor has been doing for the last eight years have taken California from a basket case with a basically a default rate, credit rating, and it's shot it to one of the strongest... I think, growing economies in the U.S. today. And I believe you will see within a year the, the miracle that California's experienced in the last year is only the beginning of what you'll see next year. By the way, I often come back to bonds. I'm still nervous about bonds, folks. I still cannot see a pathway to, a, to, to, to being able to get the kinds of yields you need from the traditional bond market unless you're going to be very nimble, meaning in and out of mutual bond funds that are SRI bond funds probably. So you can do it if you're really good at it, but bonds would not be a place to park and hold money. Uh, it would be a place that you could have that as part of your portfolio if you're with someone like First Affirmative, but I'd be very careful because they're going to be watching for you how to move between mutual funds in and out of bonds and, and the liquidity that bonds require if you're not going to get hurt by a downward price in the face of the bond as interest rates begin to rise, assuming they do in 2015. And we'll be focusing on interest rates in the next show. Uh, right now, I can tell you, no interest rate change is coming for the next few months. So we'll recheck in in January. Excellent. On behalf of the World Business, Business Academy, thank you for joining us. And please come to our website at worldbusiness.org. Again, that's www 
worldbusiness.org to connect with us in between shows. And tune in next month for the next episode of New Business Paradigms. Until then, thank you for listening, and please do share this link.